Good morning. Lively bunch today. Back in 1990, a pastor named Bob Russell wrote a little paperback book entitled God's Message for a Growing Church. And though this book has been out of print for some time, I understand that uh, he and his son, Rusty, are going to work on an updated version. And I know why they're doing it. It's because it's such a powerful, powerful little book. On numerous occasions over the past 31 years, I have preached the timeless and practical wisdom found in this resource. And today is no exception. I want you to imagine that your favorite football team is in a huddle. They're behind by one point with 10 seconds to go, and the ball is on the five-yard line. All right, can you picture this, all you football fans? If you're basketball fans, just you can sleep through this section. The fans are waiting for something to happen. They're on their feet. They know that the next play is absolutely crucial. But the football team just stays in the huddle and they talk to each other. Eventually, the referee blows the whistle, throws the flag, and steps off a five-yard penalty for delay of game. But the team still stays in the huddle. They, they hold hands. They're talking. And finally, though, they burst out of the huddle cheering. They run to the sidelines and out of the stadium, get in their cars, and they go home. Now, every football fan would be frustrated, absolutely angry with that kind of behavior because a huddle is not an end unto itself. The purpose of the huddle is to plan the strategy for the next play and to encourage those who are participating. A team would never, ever, surely you would understand this, they would never just huddle and then hurry home. But when you think about it, Sadly, that is an accurate illustration of many churches. Maybe you've been to one. Or we know that we gather for worship once a week, as we should. That's a special time. But the problem is, I think, that some of us see this gathering as an end in itself. I mean, we measure our church's effectiveness by the number of people that have been in the holy huddle and by the inspiration that we have of the hour, the music, and then we disperse and we disappear until next week. And I think there's a problem with that. I hope you do too. You see, there's a spiritual conflict going on in this world. And a worship service is a time for us, yes, to be inspired and encouraged and to receive instructions to a certain point on, on how to make an impact for Jesus and the society in which we live. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But then he said, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now keep in mind, the purpose of the salt is to add flavor. The purpose of the salt is to penetrate the meat in order to do that. And the effectiveness of the church is not measured by what goes on in a worship service, but by what goes on in the lives of our people throughout the rest of the week. And the Apostle Paul discusses this basic truth in a letter to a young Timothy, a young protege of his named Titus. 
And in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 uh, through 10, just these two verses what we're going to focus on this morning. And in them you will find three important principles. And if you grasp these principles, it will not only enable you and I to reach out beyond the walls of Maple Grove Christian Church, it'll make a great, great big difference in how you view what we're doing this morning, how you see our church, and what our everyday responsibilities are. So that's kind of the introduction. You ready? All right, there are three principles that Paul gives us in this little short two-verse section. Number one principle, Christianity is to permeate every single area of your life. Christianity is to permeate every area of our lives. Time Magazine used to be divided into several different categories, and it still is to a certain extent. There's always a section about sports. There's always one about business, one usually about art or what's going on in society. It's usually an entertainment section. And occasionally, not so often, but sometimes back in the back, you'll have a section devoted to, guess what? Religion. Now, that's the way a lot of people want to segment life to begin with. They want to isolate religion from their everyday activities. For example, educators would say this. Educators would say, well, no moral values ought to be taught in the home. Spiritual values ought to be taught in the church. But we're in the business of education, and so we're teaching facts in the schools. So we have a value-free, as they say, sex education program because it's not our job to teach spiritual values. And that particular mindset, by the way, is what's driving a whole lot of the decisions being made even today in our culture. But politicians would also add, well, I mean, I'm personally against, I'm against abortion, but I'll, I'll not try to impose my beliefs on anybody else, especially religious beliefs. I think it's a private matter. People ought to be free to choose whatever they want. And the businessmen would say, well, that's fine if you want to go to church. That's good. Not a bad thing at all. But don't try to mix business and religion or religious ethics will cause you to lose your shirt every single time. Used to be at Christmas, you see a manger scene on the grounds of the state capitol. Not so much anymore. And the reason why is because you're trying to mix state and religion, and, well, we just can't have that. You see, people that are living in our secular world, by the way, we are living in a secular world, but they don't mind if we, you and I meet here every week for our holy huddle. They have no concerns about that. They don't mind us getting together to talk about God so long as we don't allow our faith to penetrate other areas. And if we're honest, I think there's a lot of Christians would prefer it that way too. Just come for an hour of inspiration on Sunday morning and then kind of just go do as you please the rest of the week. But our Lord Jesus Christ intended that our beliefs, our faith, the substance of who we are as a Christian was to, to saturate every aspect of life. The Bible says in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Colossians 1.18 says, Christ is the head of the body of the church, so that in everything He might have supremacy. I mean, did you catch that? Here, the Apostle Paul is talking about being subject in everything so that in every way we may represent Christ properly. So the point is, when you and I accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, 
we also accept him as Lord of our everyday lives. He's not just Lord one hour a week on Sunday. He's Lord of all. And he wants us to honor him on Sunday. But he also wants to be honored in the rest of the week in our entertainment, in the life that we live when we go to school, in our relationships, in your occupation or your business. And this is why it's so important for us to understand what is expected when you become a member of the Lord's church. I mean, you're not expected just to attend regular worship services and just give some of your money or maybe invite your neighbor if you get an opportunity. I mean, that's only if you think the service is going to be okay or whatever. You and I are to make Jesus Lord of everything. Now, it doesn't mean perfection. I'm not talking about that. But it does mean that you and I acknowledge the authority of Jesus Christ in every aspect, every facet of our existence. Christianity has always been about a new way of thinking and feeling and behaving about everything. Why? Because if it's true, if it's true that God created us, then He is Lord of us. He's Lord of everything. If it's true that Jesus Christ died to save us from our sins and from hell, then that message is needed by not just one or two, but everybody needs that message. If it's true that Christ rose from the dead, promises perfect eternal life to those who believe in Him, then that hope should dominate our lives every day. Let's say you work as a cook in a restaurant, and one day a fire breaks out in the kitchen. And you can see that it's quickly getting out of control. So out in the dining room, Everybody's relaxed and having a good time waiting for their meals. But if you see the situation that's going on here in the kitchen, what can happen, and you care about other people, what are you compelled to do? You're compelled to run out and interrupt their casual dining experience. And you've got to say, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? You know, because in that moment, you know, in that moment, guess what? You're going to be conspicuous. People are going to wonder what you're talking about. Why are you interrupting their nice, calm evening? Waiters are going to miss out on their tips. The owner doesn't want his establishment to have a negative image. But you're going to risk all of that because there's a message you have that's going to save these people's lives. And the same is true of Christianity. Guys, if it's true, then it affects everything and everybody. That's why Acts 4.20 says, when the authorities were told that the early Christians were preaching the gospel. They told them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. When they were told this, those faithful Christians said this, we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. There is no area of your life or my life that is unaffected by Jesus Christ. When you're a Christian, all of us, everything about us, The world may not like the idea, but that's the truth. And in everything, Scripture says, Jesus is to have supremacy. We are to be his representatives every minute, every place. Now, that's the first principle. Christianity is to permeate every area of life. But Titus 2.10 also says that Christians should make every effort to attract others. That's the second principle. Our responsibility is to then attract other people to Jesus. Titus 2.10 says Christians should make the effort to, so that in every way 
we will make the teaching about our God, our Savior, attractive. J. Vernon McGee says this Greek word used for to uh, be attractive or to adorn is like using cosmetics, you know, in some way. It's anything that would make it would advance the gospel and would make it more attractive to the world. You see, the world stereotype of a Christian uh, is maybe not such a good idea sometimes. As somebody who never, well, you know, you never have any good times, you know, you try to prevent everybody else from having a good time. You're kind of a cranky, grumpy type person. You know anybody like that? Rebecca Pippard in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, wrote, Christians and non-Christians have something in in common. We're both uptight about evangelism. We're not not really out there much like we should be. Our fear as Christians seems to be, well, how many, I don't want to offend anybody. How many people did I offend this week? And of course, the Lord is represented in a pretty unattractive way in some circles. The Bible does say in Isaiah 53, too, that he had no beauty, he had no majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. But what we need to remember is that Jesus Christ possessed a charisma. There was something about him that just caught everybody's attention. And when you and I live a life with that same charisma, Christ in you and me, the hope of glory, then we're going to draw attention to, not to us so much, but to the fact that Jesus does indeed and has indeed changed our lives. Isaiah 53, 2 said, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. But yet He drew people to Him by the thousands. Jesus was a strong man physically. He was a carpenter. <clears throat> Carpenters in that day had to cut their own trees. and Yes, that would make him feel like a lumberjack. His hands would have been calloused. His shoulders would have been broad. And he hung out with fishermen, which is not a bad thing for those of us who like to fish. His face would have been bronzed by the sun. Can you picture him? He was a strong man physically, but he also was a caring person emotionally. He knew how to weep, and he knew how to laugh. And people who had troubles could bring their problems to Jesus, and he understood. He was also a courageous person publicly. He was not afraid to take a stand, even if that was against the tide of popular opinion. He was a brilliant man intellectually. He had no peer. Even his enemies were amazed at the depth of his insight. They would say, how can this be? He never went to any of our schools. He's from Nazareth. How can this be? He was an excellent communicator. The common people heard him gladly. And the lawyers and the doctors were amazed at his teaching. And they said, never, never has a man spoken like he does. And people from every single walk of life were attracted to Jesus. There was a blind beggar named Bartimaeus who called out from the roadside Son of David, have mercy on me. And God did. There was the aristocrat Nicodemus. You may have read about him. He sneaked an audience with Jesus late at night. There was the immoral woman at the well, married five times, living with a man to whom she was not married. But but after a brief conversation with Jesus, she raced into the town and said, come and see a man who told me everything 
everything I'd ever done, and yet he still cares for me. There was the pious rich young ruler. Remember him? He asked Jesus, well, I've kept the law. I've obeyed all the rules. What do I still lack? And Jesus told him. And think of all the little children who always wanted to sit in Jesus' lap. Or all the older people who needed to be healed by him. Crowds of more than 5,000 people would go out into the wilderness and follow him around just to hear what he had to say. And just before he died, Jesus comforted his disciples by saying to them, peace I leave with you. I leave this peace, my peace I give you. And as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now here's the truth. All this is truth, but here's kind of the punchline truth. You ready? If we call ourselves Christians, then we have to represent Jesus in our world. That's part of the requirement, part of the responsibility. That means that there should be an attractiveness about us as well. There ought to be a peace. There ought to be a joy. There ought to be a sense of calm and peace of love and a sense of vitality that makes other people look at us and say, you know, I, I don't understand exactly why you're the way that you are, but I want to know more about this Jesus. You've got something I don't have. Other people should be able to see in us that we can have a good time without lowering our standards. They should see an attractiveness about us that draws them to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men. Why? That they may see your good deeds and then praise your Father in heaven. That's the second principle. Then principle number three. And this may surprise you, but our jobs, our vocations represent a primary opportunity for you and me to witness. Our job represents a primary opportunity for witnessing. And that gets us to Titus 2 verse 9 where the Apostle Paul tells Titus something. He says that you should teach slaves to be subject to their masters. Now again, that, none of us are slaves but most of us would be employed by someone. That's the analogy that is better made, I think. And the principles set forth in this little passage can be applied to every one of us if we are, have an obligation to honor the work of, or an employee asks us to do, uh, whatever that job might be. Christianity is to make a difference, in other words, in how you perform your day-to-day -day work. And we spend a lot of time at work. And so... You have an opportunity, and every time this comes around, you can be a witness. And from a spiritual perspective, the primary, listen to this, the primary purpose of your job, whatever it is, is that not just earn a living, but that you could witness for our Lord Jesus Christ. There are always going to be non-Christians around you. There's always going to be weak Christians who need to be reinforced. Some people can see their job as rather kind of a drudgery to be avoided. According to the Associated Press, I read of a 35-year-old resident of New York who was quoted as saying, you know, I like to live decent. I like to be clean. 
That was his quote. Nothing wrong with that. The only problem was that this particular person, uh, he didn't like to work. So he found another way to satisfy his cultured taste. This is a true story. He would walk into a fine restaurant and order an expensive cuisine and choice liquor, and then when the check arrived, he would just simply shrug his shoulders and wait for the police to come. He would end up in the slammer. He was homeless, apparently, but he would always end up in the slammer where he would receive three square meals a day and a clean bed. He has pled guilty to stealing restaurant meals 31 times. New York taxpayers have paid out more than a quarter of a million dollars over five years to feed and clothe and house one lazy man. That's something makes you almost want to reconsider what you're doing for a living these days, maybe. But Robert Maddox, in his book, The Christian Employee, suggests that God often arranges our lives. Think about this. That you, so you have to work with non-Christians. You have to rub shoulders with those that may not think the way you do about everything. He says we average 36% of our waking hours at work, and we complain the whole time about the worldly people we have to work with, but God has arranged it so that the Christian life intersects and interacts at work with people we would probably avoid otherwise. Isn't that interesting? And the Apostle Paul is telling Titus to teach those that are under the authority of a, of a boss or a worker to have a submissive spirit. Now, I want to tell you something. That does not come naturally. Have you ever noticed that? How many of you just love to wake up in the morning and say, I just feel like being submissive today? Oh, doesn't happen. Doesn't happen in my house, for sure. My wife would beat me up. <laughs> but, I mean, that, that's, this, is the, this is so fascinating. Here's a, an Old Test, a New Testament book, really, with Old Testament written all over it, but it's teaching us current principles, how from infancy we exhibit a rebellious spirit. A business attempted to establish a drug testing program for its employees working in sensitive areas and the employees immediately filed a grievance with the National Labor Relations Board. And they said, we don't take drugs, but we don't want the company infringing on our rights and telling us what to do. But as Christians, we're to have a compliance spirit at work. We're to respect delegated authorities, even those who can, can be harsh sometimes and unreasonable. And by the way, the nobody can tell me what to do kind of mindset and attitude doesn't belong anywhere in the life of a Christian. The way we respond to earthly authorities says a whole lot about the way you and I respond to the authority of our Lord Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus humbled himself and he became obedient to the will of his Father, even though it led all the way to a Roman cross. And Paul is telling Titus, to communicate the message here that we should try to work faithfully and diligently, please those who are in authority over us, have a pleasant spirit. Some, some superiors can never be pleased. I mean, we know that. We probably met them and already have had encounters firsthand. But as much as possible, a Christian should try to be cooperative. Make your superior look good. We're to go about our jobs pleasantly and willingly. That means we smile. We have an upbeat spirit. And we try to give our best all of the time. But it's not always easy. 
An article once appeared in Campus Life magazine, and it was just titled, The Lady in Room 415. It's about a nurse who was trying to be pleasant on the job. But it's also an appropriate illustration for this very important third principle. Here's what she wrote. Eileen was one of my first patients. Eileen was totally helpless because a cerebral aneurysm had left her with no conscious control over her body. As near as doctors could tell, Eileen was totally unconscious, unable to feel pain, unaware of anything going on around her. And it was the job of the hospital staff to turn her over every hour to prevent bed sores, to feed her twice a day what looked like thin mush through a stomach tube. Caring for her was a thankless task, the nurse wrote. When it's this bad, an older student nurse had told her, you just have to detach yourself emotionally from the whole situation. Otherwise, you'll just throw up every time you walk into a room. And as a result of such thinking, more and more, she came to be treated as a thing, a vegetable. Hospital jokes about her, were her room were gross and dehumanizing. But the young nursing student decided that she could not treat this person like all the others were treating her. So when she would go in, she would talk to Eileen. She would sing to her. She would try to encourage her, even brought her small gifts. And then one day, there's always this time, then one day when things were especially difficult, and it would have been easy for the young nurse to take out her frustrations on the patient, she just decided to be especially kind. It was Thanksgiving Day. And she said to Eileen, I was in such a cruddy mood this morning, Eileen, because it was supposed to be my day off. But now that I'm here, I'm glad. I wouldn't have wanted to miss seeing you on Thanksgiving Day. Do you know that this is Thanksgiving Day, Eileen? Just then the phone rang, and as the nurse turned to answer it, she glanced back at her patient, and suddenly she writes, Eileen was looking at me, and she was crying. Big, damp circles stained her pillow. She was shaking all over. That was the only human emotion Eileen had ever showed any of them. But it was enough to change the whole attitude of the hospital staff towards her. Not long after, Eileen died, and the young nurse closed her story about her saying this, she said, I keep thinking about Eileen. It occurred to me that I owe her an awfully lot. If, I had not, if it had not been for Eileen, I might never have known what it's like to give, to my, give myself to someone who can't give back. Now that's the spirit of what Paul is talking about. He says also in Colossians 3.22, he said, listen, slaves, those that are work for bosses or whatever, you obey your earthly masters in everything. And you do it not only when their eye is on you or to win their favor, but you do it with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Why? Verse 23, whatever you do, you're to work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Jesus you are serving. You see, as Christians, we're not just serving a superior. We're serving the ultimate superior. 
Everything you say, everything you do is to be done to the glory of Jesus Christ. And he's taking note of how we perform on the job and whether you do it pleasantly or not. In the Old Testament, there was a guy named Joseph, and he was the slave of, a, of an Egyptian named Potiphar. And the Bible tells us that Potiphar left everything he had in care of Joseph. And the Bible says that when Joseph was in charge, he didn't concern himself about it, except the food that he eat that he ate. Why? Well, Joseph was dependable. He was trustworthy. I mean, you had to believe that Potiphar would be impressed with Joseph's God because Joseph's God was not an Egyptian God. A slave owner once stood examining a slave, a young man who was on the auction block, and he looked the slave in the eye and he said, Sir, if I, if I buy you, will you be honest? And the young man responded, Sir, I'll be honest whether you buy me or not. That is what we're talking about. If we're ever going to prepare for the future, that our church needs to make sure that we are abiding by these basic principles. That is being trustworthy, being a person of integrity. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, regardless of who you're with, you, you can be trusted. You and I don't influence people by carrying around a big Bible or having all these Bible verses and studies and things going on or by twisting people's arms nearly as much as we influence them by just having a submissive, pleasant spirit, we restrain our tongues and we become honest and trustworthy. And when people see that in us, that see Jesus Christ in us, they're going to be attracted to him. Make sure that they're not attracted to you or me. Always point them to the, the source of the gentle spirit you may have or the, of the dedicated work ethic, whatever it is, always point them to Jesus. You don't influence people by carrying things around. When people see Jesus in us, going forward, I hope they will, whatever you do in word or deed, let's do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for once again bringing to us from Scripture. Uh, really, it's a mandate. It's actually, Father, an opportunity for us to put into living practice and not just words, but our behavior. And so, Lord, as we come together now around your table, this is even a better opportunity for us to, before you, before the eyes of our Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves. And we partake of this emblem. One represents the blood that Jesus was spilled on the cross. The other represents the broken body. And as we come to worship, we come in a submissive spirit to humble ourselves because the scripture tells us that Jesus told us as often as we do this, we're doing it for him. And may that be the spirit as we have this moment of time and quiet as we take the Lord's Supper together. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.